Technology, like a newfound potion, allows us to marvel at mysteries of motion. Mix red and gold from autumn flowers, purple and blue from twilight hours. What about science? Now you've got it! Wow, wow, wow! The sparks ignite! Ah, a brand new show! W, w Radio Your Information Station Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. This is show number 29 for the week of August 26th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, just off a plane from my quick trip to Walt Disney World, and I want to thank you for tuning in once again. Before I get started, I want to thank everybody who came by the Virgin Megastore in downtown Disney last night to get some books, have their books signed, or even just to say hi. We had a great turnout, we were there for about three and a half hours, and I really appreciate so many of you coming by and saying hello. Your support really means a lot to me and made last night a really wonderful, wonderful night for me. I was blown away by how many of you took the time out of your vacation or your Saturday night to stop by, and I enjoyed having a chance to meet and chat with all of you. It was great to see so many old friends as well as put some faces to the names of some people that have emailed the show in the past. And uh, while I hesitate to thank people individually by name for fear of inevitably leaving somebody out, I have to give a special thanks to Jenna Sykes, who came with her mom. Jenna not only came by to say hi, but she also brought me a present that she made, which was a picture of Peter Pan, since she knew it was my favorite character. And Jenna, as promised, I have hung it on the wall of my office as soon as I got home. But we need to get on with the show, but I really want to give my sincere thanks once again to everybody that came by. As your support last night really made it something special for me, and I hope you guys had fun as well. So, But anyway, because I was away for the past couple of days, I don't have any news or rumors for you this week, but I promise to cover all that's new and notable next week. Instead, I have a number of segments that I think you're going to enjoy. First, we're going to start off with an interview with Tim Foster. He's the author of a number of wonderful Walt Disney World books, including his all-new Guide to the Magic. With Epcot's 25th anniversary coming up on October 1st, I wanted to also tell you about Celebration 25, a fan-created event in the park honoring the occasion and one that I'll be attending and sponsoring. And to discuss it further, I'm bringing on the event's co-founder, Adam Roth. There's still time to register and join us, so be sure to listen in to not only some of the great things that Adam has planned, but how Disney has gotten behind the event as well. And speaking of Epcot's 25th, it's time for another segment in our Epcot Retrospective series. This time, Jeff and I explore one of Epcot's most unique pavilions in concept and design, as well as some of the most beloved characters ever created by Disney. Of course, this is our own journey into imagination with Dreamfinder and Figment. We'll talk about the attraction's history, revisit it scene by scene, discuss the changes over the years, and more. I'll get back to more of your emails and voicemails next week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. We plunder, we rifle and loot, drink up me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We extort, we pilfer, we filch and sack, drink up me hearties, yo-ho. 
marauding embezzle, and even hijack. Drink up and be hearty, Joe-ho. This week, I want to introduce you to not only another Disney author and his website, but in my opinion, some of the best Disney books you may never have heard of until now. The man is Tim Foster. His website is GuideToTheMagic.com, and he has a total of five Walt Disney World-related books that offer something for everyone and a couple that are my some of my personal favorites. Tim, I want to welcome you to the WDW Radio Show. Thanks. Good to be here. Tim, I'm, I'm going to tell the story that I tell all the time because we met, I guess it was three years ago at, uh, at yep. MouseFest, and you, you were walking around with what would eventually become kind of the sort of the, the crown jewel of your book collection, uh, The Guide to the Magic for Kids, that we're going to talk about. But you happened to be walking around, you came up to our table, I was with my publisher at the time, and you showed him the book, and I'll remember, I remember seeing the book and pulling my publisher to the side and saying, sign this guide now because it was just the most amazing beautiful book i had ever seen and you know it didn't necessarily work out with the intrepid traveler so be it but since then you've put out a series of four smaller books and this year's magic meets event you you finally were able to unveil uh, the final version of your guide to the magic but before we talk about uh the guide to the magic Let's talk about the other books in the series first, and we'll start off, uh, maybe why don't we talk about some of the simpler ones first. You have the Guide to the Magic autograph and sticker book. Tell us a little bit about exactly what that is. Right. Well, the thought with that was uh, a lot of the autograph books, well, pretty much all the autograph books that you normally see are filled with blank pages, and that's about it. So what we thought we'd do is have a little fun with it and um, make it more than just a bunch of blank pages. We put places for you to actually fill in where you were and uh, what time it was and, and your special memories of when you got your autograph. Place to even include a photograph of you getting uh, your autograph, uh, which is something you always get but probably can never think of where to put them. And uh, we also added a section for stickers. Um, I know we took our daughter down to Disney. We would get stickers all the time from the boat captains and that sort of thing, but we could never remember where we got them from a few months later. So we included a place for you to include them and record where they were. We also put a World Showcase section in there so you can collect passport stamps and autographs from uh, people around World Showcase. And uh, the last thing which I thought was something pe- most people forget to do is to uh, get the autographs from cast members and get them to sign your book and get to hear a little bit about them. So we included a special section just for the cast members because uh, they're just as important and part of the magic, too. And that's one of the two things about this book that I really, really like. And I know when, my, when I take my daughter down this year, this is what we're going to take with us. Because like you said, you always take a picture of your kids getting autographs and they never end up matching up to the autograph. So right. I think it's great that they can kind of face the, the page where you got the autographs. And I'm really, really happy. I'm a big proponent of cast members and how important they are. And I'm really happy that you put something in there where you can get a cast member autograph. And it doesn't have to necessarily be... You know, a cast member like Scoop Sanderson or Streetmosphere, it could just be the cast member that you meet in World Showcase or a restaurant or, or wherever it may be. So I, I like the fact. And you put something in there about their hometown and their comments so you can kind of remember a little bit more about that specific cast member. Right. Yeah, we always tell people if you find it, like certainly talk, strike up a conversation with them. They'll always have great stories and they're more than willing to talk to you and you'll meet some really nice people. Absolutely. And, you know, part of, of obviously the, the purpose of this book is being able to create those memories and, and, and save those memories. And that's what you're able to do, too, with the Guide to the Magic Journal, which is this personal keepsake for the vacation. Tell us about what's in here. Right. Well, same idea we found when we were going down on vacation. We'd keep our own journals and we'd always be 
writing down everything we could remember, even what the weather was and what rides we went on, of course, but even little things like what the funniest moments were of the day and that sort of thing. And uh, we would get home, and I'd actually try and put them together in a neat little book, but then realize that there aren't really any journals out there that help you along to do that. They're, they, too, are usually blank pages, or they're very minimal. And uh, so we put together a journal that has lots of places for you to fill in uh, the things you did, uh, your favorite memories of the day, that kind of thing. So, uh, And that same idea, a few months later when you're done your trip, you're looking back on it, you have a nice little keepsake, and you can remember all the little things you did and all the places you visited and relive it all over again. Yeah, I love the way you have it laid out because it's very, very simple. You have it a day-by-day, uh, and, and all these books I should mention, the one um, – thing that kind of goes through all these books. They're all spiral-bound, which makes them very easy to carry, very easy to kind of fold them over and write on. But you have a day-by-day kind of thing. For example, day five, like you said, you can say where you went to in different checkboxes and how you got around. And And it would be a nice thing, I thought, maybe at the end of the day, after dinner, you go back to the room, you're sitting with your kids and say, okay, you know, what kind of magical moments did we have? And, you know, what was our best part of the day? What are we looking forward to doing tomorrow? And instead of just, you know, going through a guidebook and checking off the attractions that you visited, you can actually write down, okay, you know, I I liked, you know, here's Peter Pan's flight and here's my rating and here's why it's my favorite. Here's my comments and, you know, here's where we ate and what we ate. Because like you said, you you go back and you lose those memories very quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's things for, for characters as well and even souvenirs that you picked up. This way, maybe later on you go back and say, you know, where did I get that such and such or when did I get that? Um... So yeah, two great books, I think, for, for being able to keep track of, of what you're doing. And they're not expensive. And again, they're, they're very portable because they're not – they're separated from the other books that you have, which I think is great. Um, right. The other book in the, in the four-part series is The Guide to the Magic. And this is your actual guidebook. Um, tell us about this and kind of what separates this book maybe from some of the other guides that are out there. Well, with this book we did in, uh, with the view of taking it to the park. And like the other ones, it's very small, spiral-bound, so you can open it easily. And uh, one of the things with uh, a lot of the other guidebooks we found, they would talk about the parks, but they would talk about them probably in the course of a few pages. And, of course, the other guidebooks usually talking about restaurants and resorts and all that kind of thing. But we didn't think there was one that was really good for when you were just in the park. So we took the Guide to the Magic, and it's, it's just about the parks, just about the attractions. And each attraction gets its own page, and we talk about... Uh, an overview of the attraction, what type of attraction it is, magical moments, touring tips, is it scary, that sort of thing. And the other thing that I tried to accomplish with this book was to let the reader decide whether an attraction was right for them. Uh, A lot of other guidebooks have sometimes critical opinions on the rides, and they're, of course, the opinions of the author, which are, are fair, but they might not be relevant to you. You might not like scary rides, or you might not like thrill rides where the author might. So with this book, we tried to just, we'll tell you what it is. We'll tell you it's a thrill ride, it's, it's a fast ride, it's a slow ride, it's a dark ride. And then depending on what the attractions you like, you'll be able to find the ones that are right for you. Right. I mean, I like at the front that you kind of have this guide to how you have it broken down. You know, fast rides, slow rides, rides for kids, right. uh, some of the best kept secrets. But I think... What I really like, too, is for each of the attractions you have on the very bottom, just the bottom line, a quick and dirty kind of description of what the attraction is, you know, why you might like it, why you might not like it. Uh, For example, I'll just turn to the Haunted Mansion, a true classic not to be missed, spectacular visual effects are the highlight of this Disney classic, 
Fans of slow-moving rides will especially love The Haunted Mansion. It's descriptive. You know what you're getting at, you know, again, without having a large book with a lot of uh, descriptions and, and, like I said, other people's opinions, uh, you know, one way or the other. Um, But I think my favorite book in this four-book series, and you'll see why (laughs) very quickly, um, is your Lost Journals book. Yeah, that was a fun one. That's probably one of my favorites, too. Um, The idea with that one was to put together a a book that has all the secrets and hidden Mickeys and things to look for. But we had some fun with this one. We made it appear like it was a journal of uh, an unknown adventure that had been there before you, and you happen to come across it, and you're looking through their notes, and uh, they were on a quest before you, not very successfully, to find some of the hidden things, but... They left lots of hints and clues and things to look for, so you can kind of follow in their footsteps. And and it's filled with uh, scavenger hunts and mystery photos and uh, things to look for and hidden Mickeys and, and all kinds of fun stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, the layout of the book is great, and it's beautiful, too. It's in black and white, but it, but I just love the, the, the concept that you put together. Again, like you're picking up, you know, an old explorer's journal, and you have, you know, fact-finding things, and you have photographs kind of, scavenger hunt things um little question and answer sections and they might be talking about you know mysteries of things that you might see or like you said the hidden mickeys or uh, lots of the little trivia and fun facts and scavenger hunts um and and other than just being a book that you read or take with you it's very interactive and gives you a lot of different things that you can do either while you're online or while you're touring the parks or maybe even after you got back to your room at the end of the night yeah, there's even there's even one section I want to point out. We had a lot of fun with this. Was a, a scavenger hunt that we made for the book, where um, there's symbols that we picked out in all the lands and all of the parks. And your mission is to find the symbols. And when you do, you write down the attraction that you were at when you saw it, the first letter of it actually. And you spell out a secret word. You can actually go to guidedmagic.com and enter the word and get a little movie that tells you the secret behind the magic of Walt Disney World. And that was a lot of fun to put together, too. Yeah, and very, very cool. And, and I have to admit, I unfortunately have not finished this yet, so I don't know what the secret <laughs> code is. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And even when I was home, you know, picking up, so for example, the, the photographic journals to the different lands, trying to identify, you know, where in the world might you have seen these pictures and trying to either do it from memory. But to have the book with you in the parks would really be a lot of fun. And it, it's something that... Kids can use it's something that adults can use. It it doesn't it kind of spans the different generations. It's not just for one or the other, right? But now speaking of kids, nice segue, Lou. This mm-hmm. this is my this is my favorite. Uh, it's much bigger. It's all in color. It's absolutely beautiful. It's your guide to the magic for kids. Um, why don't you explain this because uh, it's just an amazing amazing book. All right, well, this was the original book that started the whole venture and. Uh, and the idea behind it was to make a guidebook with with kids in mind. There aren't really that many out there that are just for the kids. Um, so what we did was, it's not just a guidebook. We tried to put a lot of things into this book. It's a it's a journal. It's a sticker book. Uh, it's an autograph book. It's um, a guidebook, of course. It's a photograph book. It's filled with photographs of pretty much every attraction and every little nook and cranny of the parks. And it's very interactive. We have a lot of things in there for kids to have fun with and enjoy. There's, as I said, there's stickers in the back. There's stickers for each attraction in the park. Um, where they can use them to indicate the attractions they went on. They can rate the attractions, write down things they liked. And we also included lots of little tips 
little secrets, little hidden mickeys, little fun facts that kids can read while they go around the park. And uh, actually part of the vision was that the kids have the book, take it around, and the book has the maps and the secrets and the tips, so they can become the tour guide for the whole family because they have this book that'll tell them all the little cool things to find out and places to visit and that sort of thing. There's a lot of fun to put together. I have to tell you, Guide to the Magic for Kids is almost a misnomer because I really, really like this. First of all, it's beautiful. Um, it's it's much larger than the other ones. Again, it's also spiral bound. But the, the, I mean, there's hundreds of photographs in here that are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, I'm looking at the Main Street picture now and your picture of Peter Pan's flight and just beautiful, beautiful pictures. All these, you, you took all these? All of them. There's there's four or five Disney pictures in there, but yes, they're all ours. And, and you're right, we actually have in mind that it's for kids of all ages. We actually put on the front, it's for kids and parents too. And I've had a lot of parents look at it. And even just for the photographs, I have a lot of fun just looking through it and being able to relive some of the magic of being there. Yeah, it's, um, like I said, I'm kind of just going through it as, uh, you know, as we're talking here. And you you hit on the fact that, that I really like about this book that I think separates it from many of the other guidebooks is it is interactive, whether you're using it in the parks or whether you're even looking at it at home. Um, it's definitely a, it's a fun book. Yeah, and there's uh, there are a few. There's even some scavenger hunts and beginnings that kids can do. And as I said, it does include a journal in its own right, a lot more colorful and, and fun for kids to fill out. Um, so the other thing it does, too, is it serves as a, souvenir book for your trip because there's so much in there to fill out that you can look at the book six months a year or even years later and and not just see the pictures that are in the guidebook but what the what you thought about the rides and your memories and that sort of thing so lots of ways to relive the magic of your trip even years later exactly that's what i was going to next at the end of the book you do have the day-by-day uh, you know, guides that, are, that were kind of in the other book, but if if your kids do take this with them, it's a great, like you said, it's a great souvenir, and there are places for stickers and autographs, so it's kind of an all-encompassing book, so they have only one place to refer to uh, when they're kind of looking back, um, uh, you know, on their trip. Right. Yeah, and hopefully for parents, too, and I'm sure a lot of parents will help fill in the book and have just as much fun with it as the kids do, so. Yeah, and like I said, you know, I really just enjoy sitting home with this, kind of just going through it, looking at the pictures. Um, you have some great uh, details and some trivia and, and things to find here and your rating systems and stuff like that. So really, really well done. And uh, this this is definitely one of the prized pieces of my collection. I'm not just saying it because you're here on the air with me. So, <laughs> But, you know, we, we were talking about how we met during Mouse Fest. Uh, when did you start actually writing this book? Because it had to have taken you a long time to put this together. Well, probably, I guess about a year before Mouse Fest, which of course is in December, probably earlier in the in the spring or early summer is when we had the idea and started. And actually the version you saw was the second one. We had done a first version, um, which I liked, but I thought we could do a lot better and make it even more fun than it was. So, So we spent a lot of time you know, researching it, designing it, getting lots of pictures, of course, and putting it together. So, so I said probably about a year before you even saw it, and that was several years ago. And even since then, we had to do a lot of updating and even new photos and just kept adding to it. And the more we added to it, the more ideas, uh, you know, we came up with to make it even more fun and more colorful and more magical. So. And, and the thing that really impressed me, and, and forgive me if I, if I 
pat you on the back here, but you put the whole thing together. You laid the book out. You designed the whole book. I mean, you're really so talented in how you're able to put this together because it's so colorful. It's so fun. It's so vibrant. Uh, it really is a lot of fun, like I said, just to even read at home. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I kind of think of it's not so much I wrote it, but just put the whole thing together. And and it was fun doing that because it, uh, it was it was a book I would want to have if I were a kid or even a grown-up. So, and, and it was you know, a lot of fun to um, make it as colorful and, and magical as we could. Well, I actually have two. I admit that I have two. I have one that I'm going to take with my kids when we go, and they can write in and do whatever. And I have one that I'm going to leave on the shelf. Just, you know, don't touch this one, kid. This is Daddy's, this is daddy's book. That's so. the one Daddy's going to sell out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing, too, is all the books tie directly back to your website, which is guidetothemagic.com. What can we find on the website? Uh, well, again, with the website, we took the same approach as we did with the books. The, we wanted to make a website that was really about the parks themselves and the attractions and the magic that you find at the parks. Um, so there's for each attraction, there's several pages of information. There's uh, the history, a description or a walkthrough, uh, magical moments that you'll experience while you're on the ride, touring tips. Uh, little-known facts, photo galleries, of course, and even some maps. And it's a huge site, and we tried to put it together so there'd be lots and lots of things to do if you were a really Disney junkie and just wanted to <laughs> go there and experience the magic. So like the books, too, it's very colorful, very graphical, just lots of fun to click around and just explore. That, if you can't be in Walt Disney, we're hoping that's at least the next best thing. You can kind of get the feeling that you're there by going through the parks and seeing all the cool things that are there. That's exactly the word I was going to describe it, because when you do go to the yeah. site, you know, you're not just met with thousands of links. You really can kind of go through and explore and find, you know, kind of drill your way down to, to experience all the different things. You also have a, a, a weekly newsletter that, that people can sign up for? Weekly when, when we're on schedule. <laughs> air quotes, right. Air, air quotes weekly. <laughs> yes, and the same idea with the newsletter. We, we just try and make it a lot of fun. Uh, do an interesting article here and there, but but talk a lot about magic moments and special um, tips of the day, of the week, I should say. And a mystery photo or two, just to keep your head scratching <laughs> and uh, be fun. And most people do okay with those, but there's some challenging ones in there. But again, it's meant to give you a little little dose of magic every week and let you get a feel for, if you're not there, maybe this is close enough and just trying to make it a lot of fun. Well, I subscribe and and I enjoy it. But the thing that I like about the books is, is I like the four individual books, you know, as a Disney fan, or a trivia fan. Uh, but I, I really like the niche that you're filling for kids with the Guide to the Magic for Kids book. And you, right. you're, you're tapping into something that I don't think anybody really has addressed very well. A book not for parents, for their kids. It's a book for kids. And right. I saw you when we were... At Magic Meets um, a couple of months ago, that's when you, you launched the book kind of officially, and you also did some presentations there in the main room specifically for kids, and they really, really seem to enjoy it, and it's kind of like a live version of what they were able to experience in the book. Right, and uh, even at um, Mouth Fest, we did our first meet last year, and hopefully do some more this year, uh, but we ran some meets just for kids, and of course, parents are welcome too. But we did it for the kids, and we took them around the park, showed them cool things they could uh, look for, uh, went on some of the rides, and had lots of fun, lots of 
prizes and stickers and that sort of thing. I was just amazed, though, at how much the kids know. They're, I would tell them a little secret about one of the attractions, and they'd fire back with three more. And was, <laughs> I think the most, the most fun was just seeing, in their eyes, the magic. When they, when they would tell me a secret, like one of them told me about the, the key under the doormat at, at Muppet Vision 3D Theater, and they were... I, I could see in their eyes, they were just so proud that they knew this fact and they could share it, and it just, it, it was just amazing. They're like, all right, and t- it, challenge me. that's what it's all about. You know? Right. They're like, come on, Tim, you know, give us give us a hardball here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, I, I'm throwing out all these, I thought they were tough questions, and the kids are, or, the parents didn't know any of them. The kids <laughs> had them all. It was, it was a lot of fun, but, but it was so much fun taking the kids around. I could do that every day of the year, and, uh, and just seeing that magic is, well, I hadn't minded doing the Guide to the Magic for kids because um, even even seeing the magic through their eyes is something something really wonderful. Yeah, and you mentioned briefly Mouse Fest. I know you have a couple of meets on the schedule. Tell us a little about some of the things you're gonna you're gonna try and do during Mouse Fest. Uh, well, we're going to uh, last year we did uh, a meet in Epcot in Future World, and we're going to do the same thing this year. Uh, we will get together in Future World, go on some of the attractions, the ones that don't have lines that are too long at the time. Um, but we went around and we had uh, scavenger hunts and quizzes and mystery photos and that sort of thing, and we would pass out stickers and prizes and, and just had a ton of fun doing it. So this year, on Saturday, we're going to do an Epcot meet as well, and we're also going to do a Magic Kingdom meet, which I believe is on Friday, if I'm remembering, right? <laughs> and then uh, another Epcot meet, but we'll do it in World Showcase um, later on in the meet, too, so. Yeah, I'm, we'll I'm looking each, forward. Each, yeah, each one of those will be the same. We'll have lots of prizes, stickers, and just have lots of fun walking around exploring. And again, it's for kids and adults. I mean, you don't have to have kids to to go to these. Yeah, actually, I actually had a couple at last year's meet. They, to quote them, they weren't kids, but they were kids at heart, and they thought it sounded fun, and they had a blast. So, yeah, it's it's for anybody who's who's young at heart, which pretty much everybody is if you're going to Disney World. So. Right. I was saying, if you're listening to this, chances are, you, you know, you fit into that category. And I'm leaving my right. kids at home for Mouse Fest, and I'm planning on coming to your meet. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But, um, all right, Tim, uh, for more information, people can obviously go to guidetothemagic.com. I'm going to put a link up in the show notes. Um, I, ha- I want to say thank you for coming on. I also have to say thank you again. Tim Foster is actually the guy that designed the WDW Radio Show logo. So if you like the logo, Tim is a guy to thank. And if you don't like, um, it's Tim at guidetothemagic.com. <laughs> but, thank um, you. Well, that was a lot of fun to do, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you weren't saying that when I was sending you revisions and at all hours of the night. But <laughs> again, uh, at Guide to the Magic, you can purchase all the books there. You can also subscribe to Tim's newsletter. That's free. Uh, yeah, actually on our newsletter, too, if you subscribe to it, there's a link to a special section on the website. We actually have a discount on the kids' book. And also, if you go to the website, we do have package deals uh, for the other books if you want to buy the complete set or a couple of them. We have special packages for people that visit the website, so that's good, too. Uh, you can also ask Tim questions if you have kids or if you, you, you have any kind of... Yeah, and if you're going to be down at Mouse Fest, by all means, definitely stop by, see Tim at the Mega Meet, or if you can, definitely try and attend uh, one or all of his Guide to the Magic meets. And again, you can find a list of all of his meets over at the official Mouse Fest site. That's mousefest.org. Tim Foster, guidetothemagic.com. Thank you very much. Uh, anytime. It's my pleasure. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right.
October 1st is going to mark Epcot Center's 25th anniversary, and while it was originally believed that Disney was not officially going to do anything to really mark this, the, the, this day, uh, that seems to have changed in recent months as Disney has announced that they will be doing some sort of a rededication on that day. And that may be in part um, due to the, to the work and uh, some of the things going on, thanks to my next guest. And he's Adam Roth, and he is from the website DreamFinder Forever, and he's also the founder of the Celebration 25 event. And this is a, a fan-based event to kind of mark uh, Epcot's 25th anniversary. We're going to have him talk a little bit about that. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lou. Uh, it's great to speak with you again. I, I just want to correct a small note. I'm actually the co-founder of Celebration 25. I get that a lot. Um, yes, I've done a lot. But uh, the event is really the creative idea of Jen Wyatt, who one day on WDW Magic's forums came up with the idea to do a fan celebration for Epcot since they weren't doing it themselves. So we all sort of hopped on the bandwagon, and since then it's grown exponentially. Yeah, it absolutely has, and it's, it's something that has been recognized recently, not only by Disney, but by some media outlets, and it's been picked up by the Orlando Sentinel. And what started out as, a, as kind of a, a small effort, maybe, on your part, uh, why don't you tell us right now how many people you have registered to attend? As of right now, we have 645 registered at attendees. Uh, we only planned for 200 originally. It sort of started a running joke when we got towards 300, and from that point on, we, we've been amazed. In fact, in the last day, we've had 100 registrations. So uh, the last-minute spur, I guess, is getting everybody to sign up, but it, it's been great. We, we, the turnout is amazing. And tell us what you have planned uh, so far, at least what you can share with us uh, right now about uh, Epcot's 25th on that Sunday and Monday. Well, Sunday for sure we've got John Corigliano's History Walk around Future World. And we also have a couple of group meets for Sunday. Sunday will be our more laid-back day. And then, of course, the main event is really October 1st, which is Monday. And we've got some more group ride meets and group photos. We have our Illuminations Dessert Party, which is going to be amazing. We have our Community Corner event. Along with that, we have Epcot's official rededication ceremony. So we've got a lot of great events planned for that day. And the important thing to note is that, like I said, uh, you've actually, you know, Disney has actually recognized and endorsed what you're doing. Tell us how that came to be and, and how that kind of plays into everything. Well, I, I mean... I, I told John this a little bit ago, John Corigliano. Uh, it's, it's really been an experimental situation for me because I've never worked within an event before. And I sort of took on the role of uh, developing advertising and PR for the event while, John, uh, while Jen came up with creative designs. And we also had Jason, who was working on our dessert party. And then everyone else started to get involved. Well, I, I sent out invitations to the management at Epcot and other members of Disney management. And someone, I guess, referred me to the senior head of Epcot Special Events. And that is when she invited our group to join uh, Epcot's management for their official rededication ceremony. And since then, we've been working with them. It's a very friendly relationship. Uh, this is a... It's not an official event through Disney, but it is endorsed by Disney. They have given us approval for this event, so we do have their stamp of approval, and they're actually ge uh, generously giving us our sign-in tables, possible venues. There's a lot of surprises that we're still working on that we're going to show in a couple of weeks. 
Yeah, and it's, it's important to note you talked about a registration table because we shouldn't uh, note first that other than the Illuminations dessert party, the entire event is free. It's open to everybody. And uh, I'll put a link up in the show notes, but all they need to do is go to the DreamFinder Forever page by what day and, and sign up. Well, registration for our dessert party closes August 28th. That's in just a few get just a few days. And then for the main registration, that closes August 31st. And once that registration closes, we will not be taking any more registrations. So you need to get those in as soon as possible if you want to be a part of our group. You will receive a confirmation email within the next 24 hours. And if you email us saying that your registration did not go through, we will add you to the roster afterwards. But we do need a final number by August 31st. And again, I'm going to put those links up in the show notes. I will be attending. Um, I guess we can say that, that the WDW Radio Show and DisneyWorldTrivia.com is also going to sponsor the event. We're going to have some giveaways for everybody. Uh, like I said, we've been talking today. We're actually in Epcot right now. How appropriate. Talking about some of the events and doing some of the planning. And uh, this really is going to be something special. I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the, the one thing that stands out to me was I had a member of our of our group tell me that this is like counting down for Christmas. And... To, to think about that is just great. And then I, I heard yesterday from another person that this is this that someone believes that this is going to be better than the Millennium Celebration itself. And to hear that is just amazing. It, it's really a great turnout. Well, between Epcot's 25th and for people like me and you who are, you know, we, we use the term Epcot purists, it is something exciting. And it's exciting not only because of what you're doing, but because Disney is now on board. Maybe they were kind of pressured into it by some of the things that were going on and by what you were doing. And the one thing I need to note, tell everybody how old you are. I am actually 16 years old, which means I started my site two years ago. So I, I was just a little over 14 when I started my website, my podcast and everything. And uh, you know, it's interesting to think that a 16-year-old can do this, uh, but I've, I've tried not to let that uh, hold me back. And I, I don't plan on letting it hold me back now. So. Well, it's really impressive what you're doing, and I'm really happy to be a part of it, and I'm happy to be working with you, um, trying to put this together and, and uh, creating some of the surprises that, that, that I know we have in store. Again, I want to put links up in the show notes to the DreamFinder Forever page uh, where people can go. They can register again. There's no obligation if, unless they do want to go to the Illuminations as our party. Uh, I will be there on Sunday and Monday. I, I am really looking forward to it. And again, there's going to be a lot going on. We're going to release some sort of a more formal schedule as I get a little bit, little bit closer. Yes, that, that is correct. We're going to actually, I'm working with you today on, on our schedule. Uh, we're finalizing those details and those should be out soon. Uh, Lou, I, I actually have a question for you. Do you want to tell them about our upcoming work with the Dream Team? Yeah, one thing um, that, that, that um, Adam's been able to put together too is he's been able to get actually a videographer on board and there's going to be photographers and whatnot. And John's going to put together some mementos for the occasion afterwards. There's going to be a scrapbook. There's also going to be a DVD. Uh, very reasonably priced that you can buy. And uh, Adam, why don't you tell them what you're doing, uh, what you want to do as, as far as those and, and making a contribution to the Dream Team project. Um, I, I'm a full supporter of uh, the Dream Team and uh, all charity events. And I, I felt that it would be great that we could show Disney that Celebration 25 isn't just for us as the fans, but it's also for the community. So when we have our scrapbook and our memories DVD out later on after the event, it'll be out later this year, we're going to work into our price a few extra dollars, and that money will go towards charity with the Dream Team uh, behind that. And it, it's just great to have this side uh, project going on because 
the ability to show that there are fans that do care, um, to know that we're giving to people who need this more than we do is, is just a great feeling. And to think that, yes, we're going to be here for us on Celebration 25 and we're going to be here for Epcot, but to think that we're also giving to, some, to another party is what's the best and most heartwarming thing about it. Oh, that's great. And I really am be, uh, proud to be a part of this event, not just because of the Dream Team, but because of, of what you've done and, and really, you know, the motives behind what you're doing, because you do it because you, you're a, a huge fan and you're passionate about it. And uh, I'm really excited. It is kind of counting down like <laughs> to, to Christmas. Uh, I'm going to be here for the NFFC event that, that the weekend before, that, you know, earlier that weekend. I'm going to stay for this. And uh, I got to tell you how much I'm looking forward to it. Again, we're going to put some more details up. Maybe we'll have you back on again the show. As we start getting close, we'll talk some more about some of the events that you have planned, some of the su- surprises that I know are in store. That would be great. Um, I'm duly looking forward to this. Uh, I know I've had a great day with you today. Uh, and I, I just know that the, the turnout that we've had so far, it, it amazes me because I've heard so many different stories about people. We met someone today at Epcot that recognized Lou today, um, and he said he was here on Epcot's uh uh, opening and to be here 25 years later, he's going to work on it. I, I met a father who was here his uh, in in the year of Epcot's opening, and he's bringing his son 25 years later to Epcot. And then we actually—it's amazing. I think this is probably one of the greatest testaments to our event. Is we have a couple that is getting married on October 1st this year, October 1st. They're being married the morning of October 1st, and instead of enjoying their wedding later on to go do their own thing. They are actually going to be joining us on the day of their wedding, after their newlyweds. They're going to be joining us for some of the activities and for our dessert party. So it, it's a great turnout. It's, it's truly heartwarming to see that we have such a great community response. And I said this earlier, the way I like to refer to this is because everyone else is involved in the site, Lou, we've got a bunch of other websites also, and a lot of different supporters. It, it's a lot of unity in our Disney community. So it's, it's great. Uh, that, that's, that's a great way to put it, and it's a great kind of tagline for the event uh, because it is a community event, and, you, and it just goes to show you how important Epcot is and the rededication is to so many people on so many different levels. So Adam Roth from uh, DreamFinder Forever, co-founder of the Celebration 25 event. Thank you very much for coming on. I'm going to have you come on again. We'll talk some more as we get closer. Thank you very much, Lou. Talk to you later. With Epcot's 25th anniversary just around the corner this October 1st, it's time for another in our Epcot retrospective series, and we're going to take another look at a fascinating pavilion in Future World that's full of interactive technology, a great ride, uh, but more importantly, a lovable little fellow named Jeff Pepper. No, well, it's actually not Jeff Pepper. It's Figment. We're obviously talking about Journey to an Imagination, but I want to welcome Jeff Pepper again. I'm lovable. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, Lou, how's it going? I was going to do the whole horns of a steer, but I won't even bother going down that road because <laughs> singing is not uh, singing is definitely not part of this segment, at least as far as we're concerned. So I'm just right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah, I knew you knew it. And I knew you knew I knew but yeah, this, this, this is going to be a lot of fun <laughs> because that's one thing this, this pavilion is. It's a lot of fun. I mean, a lot. Of, some of the other pavilions are, are a little more serious in their tone and what they covered, especially when Epcot first opened. But one thing that the Imagination Pavilion was, was always, it, it was fun from the beginning. Yeah, it, it, it brought Whimsical into Future World. It, it really did. I mean, we had elements there, you know, in other pavilions like uh, the Kitchen Cabaret in uh, The Land pavilion and other bits and pieces here and there but this truly you know really opened it up and really brought a lot of the fun and whimsy back into to the to the atmosphere and it's ironic because originally this pavilion or, or what was going to be here was going to be completely the opposite about that it, it had the potential for possibly being a pavilion about forests or ecology or nature um, a lot of these concepts kind of got rolled into the land pavilion actually you can see elements of the forest theme in the forest of our future which is in uh interventions but uh it obviously eventually became the imagination pavilion and uh do you down a quick aside here if you remember from some early concept drawings what was supposed to be located in between the imagination pavilion and the land pavilion no i don't it was the original location for a movie themed pavilion oh, that yeah. eventually became yeah. right that eventually became the studios Right, that became the studios, and there was a, a lot of, yeah, that was where there's a lot of history and development going on with the Mickey's Movie Land concept, the Hyperion Avenue uh, studio recreation, a lot of those ideas had their genesis there. Yeah, now I remember that. Yeah, we talked, uh, you know, when I spoke to George McGinnis about delays and getting horizons built and things like that, this was another one of these pavilions that early on wasn't kind of up to speed with some of the other pavilions that were being built. If you look at some of the old movies, and I think you can still kind of find these um, online in a variety of places, you'll see that the land's exterior was almost complete while they were still laying the foundation for what was going to be the Imagination Pavilion, because it did go through a couple of machinations. It was originally going to be a two-story ride where you're going to exit out on the second um, on the second level. They eventually obviously changed that to make it a one-level ride, but it always had that a uh, really wonderful, wonderful glass pyramid design that, that I think is really something spectacular. Yeah, that corner is with the, the water elements, um, and especially at night when they play the lighting off the water elements, it's just it's just knocked down gorgeous. I the last time I was there I was trying very hard to take some nighttime pictures there because it's just it's it's spectacular, especially as you're coming back towards it from World Showcase. Yeah, you talk about memorable aspects of the pavilion. You talk about whimsy. I mean, that's one of the things, and I guess this is a good place to talk about those dancing fountains and the jumping water. Forget just the technology that's behind it. Again, just a lot of fun, you know, for kids and adults, and it's something I think we all have memories of experiencing from the first time we went. Yeah, and one of the interesting things is that uh, when Epcot opened on October 1st, 1982, the uh, 3D... Uh, the Magic Lantern Theater opened up with Magic Journeys, but the actual uh, Journey to Imagination attraction did not open yet. Right, that didn't open until March 6th uh, of 83. Uh, but the pavilion, since it did open in October 1st, has always been sponsored by Kodak. And, and it's important that we keep Kodak in the back of our minds because later on as we talk about the attraction and specifically one of the characters in it, Kodak plays a very, very important part in, in the genesis and the development 
of that character. And maybe that, that's a good way to kind of start talking about the two main characters, because that's really, I think, what this pavilion, and especially the, the original attraction, the Journey into Your Imagination attraction, was all about. Uh, because when the Imagineers came up with the idea for an imagination-themed pavilion, okay, obviously, great idea. How do you quantify it? How do you, how do you convey the idea of imagination? And fortunately or unfortunately, they were able to grab a lot of these ideas from a Disneyland concept called Discovery Bay, which never came to be. Right. That was the Tony Baxter idea that was um, put forth. It combined a lot of elements that actually evolved into different other things. And I think it actually landed ultimately, if I'm correct, in Tokyo Disneyland. Right. But but some of the concepts for characters that were going to be there were able to be brought over in almost their original format, and let's specifically talk first about the Dreamfinder, because in the original concept for Discovery Bay, he was going to be called a professor. He was going to be called Professor Marvel, or who was a professor of imagination, who was going to really travel the universe, and he was going to gather little bits of of magical things and and uh, uh, you know pieces of imagination, things like that, kind of riding this very Jules Verne inspired vehicle, which ended up being what you found in the Journey to Imagination attraction. Which was interesting, never really named more specifically than the Dream Vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> the Dreammobile. Or, yeah. well, the, the, reason, the reason I'm laughing is because, as we discuss it, there, there are so many other buzzwords or labels attached to all the various elements and devices in this attraction. And the one pivotal thing that opens the attraction... It's has no name, people. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he, uh, the one thing that he did, you know, in collecting all these things, was he, like you said, he put him in the dream port. He was able to put him in the dream port. Uh, he was created by, by like you said, uh, Tony Baxter, obviously a legendary Imagineer, as well as Steve Kirk, who worked on the original designs for Discovery Base. So they were able to take the concepts for not only the attraction, but these characters and bring them over. And one of this professor, one of Professor Marvel's greatest inventions or greatest feats was creating figment, the, the, literally the figment of imagination in, from, from pieces of the imagination that he collected um, in his travels. But again, here came the issue of how do you, how do you design a figment? You know, what, and, and maybe this is a good part, time to talk about the elements that came together to actually become who Figment is, what he looks like, and what and the, the pieces he's made up of. So we've got uh, two tiny wings. You don't want me to go on, do you? I do, I do. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm baiting you. <laughs> <laughs> nice, big, and yellow. <laughs> I'll, I'll, here, I'll mix it up a little. Uh, horns from a bull. <laughs> <laughs> He's very, he's very endearing. Oh, you totally didn't take the bait. And... What was I supposed to do? Oh, I Sing? Thought, well, maybe. But all right, maybe it's better off that you didn't. <laughs> you but, told me you didn't want me to say. I know. All right, but what you left out, his, his body is, is made up of a lizard's body and the nose of a crocodile. So they, they really did pull all these different elements in. But uh, we talked about this uh, on an older show, and the, the history of Figment, I think, bears repeating again because it's interesting how he came to be. Uh, we've talked about Tony Baxter and Steve Kirk coming up with the idea for this character who would eventually really become, and we'll talk more about this later, pretty much the unofficial or official mascot for Epcot Center's pavilion and, and really Epcot as a whole. And as legend has it, Tony tells the story that he came with, up with the idea of 
actually quantifying what a figment of the imagination would look like after watching an episode of, forgive the 80s reference here, Magnum P.I. And uh, there was supposedly Higgins said that something had torn up the grass and he talked about it just being a figment of the imagination. He comes back and says, well, figments don't eat grass. Light bulb, light bulb goes off on Tony's head. The rest is history. And if you look at some of Tony's other work, you'll see he's actually a very, very big fan of dragons. If you go to Disneyland Paris and look at the incredible sleeping dragon animatronic in the castle, uh, that was his concept uh, because he has been a big fan. But like I said, you know, you think of dragons. Jeff, there's only one right answer to this. If you think of dragons, what color do you think of? Green, Lou. Thank you very much. Your job is safe for another week. <laughs> so, you know, again. I missed that. I missed that when we talked about it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> But, okay, think Pete's dragon. Think Elliot. Obviously, you have a green dragon. So if you look, if, you're, if you see some of the original concept artwork, you'll see the Dreamfinder holding this green and white dragon. And you're like, okay, well, that's great. And the green and white dragon would make a great little plush. But now here's where Kodak comes in. Because green and white just happens to be the color of... Fujifilm. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, And there was no way Kodak was going to let their number one competitor, uh, their colors, be on a mascot for their pavilion. So there goes the green, in comes purple pigment, yellow sweater, and all that kind of stuff. And that's how Figment ends up getting the colors that, that he has today. And yeah, as and you said, as we, we'll talk about later, there are so many aspects, not just his design, um, the voice, etc., that really just endeared figment to the masses and as you said i think he he went in a direction that even disney didn't expect for him to become as popular and, and actually we will address that as well as well we you know, you continue know, on later we, and we can talk about it now we can talk about maybe the the qualities that figment possesses because you're right he was instantly loved by her because he was such a charming character uh, very different than any of disney's other characters and he's 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 really significant in that he was created specifically for the park and he he's grown even now to this day to take on a status that's you know he's not quite up there you know with the fab five or the big characters but he's big i mean people know who he is and he's endeared himself over the generations to to become a real major disney star player yeah and you know forgetting we'll we'll kind of skip just him in whole but you know when when the attraction changed and figment was initially taken out you want to talk about an uprising, forget Mr. Toad. I mean, the online community went ballistic. And there's a number of websites that still exist to this day. And we'll put these in the show notes. We'll mention them some later on. But sites like Friends of Figment and figmentsimagination.com, they really, you know, you want to talk about a grassroots effort to bring Figment back that actually worked. Uh, you know, that's what these people did because they love this character so much. And even beyond that, it was not even so much even the grassroots of that, of just the people, the general guests to the park who went and complained. Yeah. <laughs> Supposedly guest services just heard about it and heard about it and heard about it, you know, and it's it's one of those rare instances in, in a situation like this where they ultimately did a 360. Well, I think he really kind of encapsulates and represents that childlike innocence that so much of Disney – brings out in all of us and his his curiosity and all the things that kind of lead us through the attraction as we go through the attraction we'll talk more about him and how he learns and matures as he goes through but still retains that that wonderful innocence that he has and i think that's part of his appeal to people on on so many different levels and in so many different generations 
Yeah, one of one of my favorite moments in from the original attraction, and it's just it's just a little piece of dialogue interaction between Dreamfinder and Figment, but it it so very much sums up the attraction, and it sums up Disney in a way, and that is, you know, when he cre- when Dreamfinder creates Figment, and and he gets all done, and Figment says, Dreamfinder, I'm just right, and Dreamfinder says, No wait, I'm going to throw in a j- dash of childish delight. And that is, it is so much what we all come to think of with our passion for Disney. It's bringing back that child in all of us and how, no matter how old or, you know, how mature or, you know, how much of an adult you've become, you still have that little bit of childish wonder that sparks your imagination, that that sparks your creativity. Exactly. And the feeling that, you know what, you you can be... 40, you can be 80, and you want to act like that seven-year-old boy or girl again, it's okay, because we all get it, and that's what, what Disney is all about, and, and you're right, Figment is an excellent representation of that, and I think that's part of his appeal. And actually, you know, before actually before we go in to the actual, you know, ride itself, what I think is really important, too, is we when we talk about Epcot, and we talk about Future World, and we, you know, we go through these retrospectives, we it's always important how we, we kind of tie everything together, you know, we talk about how Horizons was kind of an overall you know, sort of summation of a future world. Imagination, the important thing about it was, is it, even though, like you said at the beginning, it, it can feel disjointed or feel sort of a little bit different from the other pavilions. That's not really the case because I think what they stress as you, as we will go through and kind of describe the various scenes in the ride, it ties it all back together and basically how all the other pavilions in the land, you know, the seas, everything, it's all rooted in that spark of creativity and that spark of imagination that that moves us forward into creating these new worlds and these new technologies. You must be reading my notes because the thing I was literally going to make reference to Horizon because these pavilions were similar in the fact that as opposed to a pavilion that talked about energy or communications or the sea, uh, Horizons talked about something that we can all relate to just like imagination does and even the song the one little spark song which was of course by the sherman brothers and and obviously their um their incredible talent came through in this one as well which is why it's so memorable it the dream finder says imagination is something that belongs to all of us just like in horizon the concepts that they're talking about there are things that that we can all relate to and things that we can all appreciate unlike some oh, you know what I'm not interested in energy or I'm not interested in what's going on in the seas that I think was part of the appeal of this attraction as well it, it touched everyone it, it touched something that was very at the heart of us at the very heart of all of us and I think uh, I, I think credit should be given to Billy Barty who was the original voice of Figment because he did such a great job there was something just so memorable about that voice uh, you know that, that still kind of resonates with all of us I think yeah, that's what I was alluding to when we were, we were talking before of just not just the actual design of him, but yeah, the, Billy Barty in, in that case just breathes so much life into the character. Um, just that, just that childlike energy and whimsy. He he just communicated so greatly through through his voice work. Right, and, and he, you know, Figment really is kind of the person that we follow along through the attraction. This might be a good way to start talking about the attraction itself. And I think part of the attraction's appeal was it was such a multi-sensory experience. I mean, it hits you from all angles. Uh, it was 13 minutes long, but it, it, I know for my, for like for me, it always felt longer than that. It always felt like such a, a, a much longer the, a, attraction. And there were 10 different show scenes in there, and maybe that's why. Yeah, I, I, that's the same thing when we were 
when we were putting together the segment and I was kind of doing my research on it, when I actually saw the time on it, I had the same exact reaction. It wasn't it longer. You know, I would, have, I would have said initially, if you would have just asked me out of the blue, I would have said like 20, 25 minutes. Right. You know, right. it just feels like the opening scene where, you know, you see, you know, Figment, or I mean, excuse me, Dreamfinder, you know, you're, you're paralleling his flight in his dream vehicle. I would have said that was at least 10 minutes right there. <laughs> well, you know what? And that, that brings me to one bit of the technological aspect of the pavilion that I want to make mention. Uh, there were 80 cars in the pavilion, uh, there were 20 trains that operated at one time. And the reason why I think it may have taken longer is something that people may not have recognized or realized at the time is that the speed of these cars actually changed as you went through the attraction. It went from 1.3 to 3.0 feet per second. And the reason why there were these various speeds is because at one point, when you first board the attraction, uh, you're, you're, you're really part of one long vehicle, one long train that splits up at one point into four, four smaller cars that get separated when you get into the third scene and then have to speed up later on so the cars reconnect. And I think that's what really helped add that extra level of, uh, of making the, the – uh, it, it seemed like it was longer than it was. And anyway, and you touched on something that I just – to me – it's a very subtle thing, but when you stop and think about it, I think it's simply ingenious. And it was what you just described is how the cars were in groups of four. Is that correct? Right. Is that how you just And they pivoted mm-hmm. because as you go in, as we're going in and we're going to talk about the opening scene, the cars pivoted. So you became sort of instead of, you know, going back to back, everything turned on its side and you became an audience essentially, you know, with the people beside you. And then it pivoted back again as you went through the ride through and just the way the cars would rotate to match the actual scenes that you're talking about, the environments. Like I said, it's subtle, but it's just it's remarkable. And when you when you really stop and think about it, but because you don't think about it, that's almost also testament to how effective it was. Right. And it was brilliant. And and it actually was part of the reason for the delay in the attraction because they they did have some issues with the technology, with the cars separating and then joining again and increasing and decreasing speeds. Um but like you said, it worked brilliantly, and again, I think it's something that a lot of people may not have realized. Uh, as I'm sure you remember, when you first got on the attraction, you were on, on this. Originally, it was a rotating platter, kind of like almost like a, an omnimover type system. And if you remember the pre-show, uh, the walls were all this very light blue. There was like this canopy over the archway. You saw pictures of Figment. You saw pictures of the Dreamfinder. And if you looked very carefully, these would actually be representations of the scenes that you would see as you got into the attraction right Mm -hmm. the first scene and this is the one where your vehicle separated your cars turned was called flight to the imagination and uh this this is really where the technology shined because there was this uh huge revolving disc that actually had five identical scenes so as these cars separated and turned to watch these scenes you didn't realize that there was a car next to you watching the exact same scene as you were traveling around um, th- this turntable and there were walls in between so you couldn't see that they came up and down that you couldn't see what the cars to the left of the right uh, of you were watching and this is, and after this scene this is where the cars would later accelerate come together again as a single train um, and, and those walls would disappear and, and, and you'd all come together so there were actually five audio animatronic vignettes of that scene is that correct? Is that there'd, be, there'd be these five scenes that you'd seen and then what you would do is you would before you got to the dream port, right? You'd be all be seeing right. the same thing, uh, and and again that leads to the next port. This this is where you met the dream finder. He taught he introduced you to Figment, and then you're introduced to the dream port. And this is 
another one of his inventions that was used to, to physically capture his imagination. And if you remember, Jeff, it had all kinds of dials and gears and, and gizmos and all that kind of gauges showing the different things that were stored in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, as you, I think you noted earlier, it, you know, coming from that Discovery Bay, you know, concept, it was very much rooted in this kind of quasi-Victorian, almost borderline steampunk, <laughs> you know, kind of design. It's just very, very clever. And, you know, I, I think we've mentioned this before, you know, folks, if, if you want to see some type of just basic representation of it, they did save one of them, and it's in the... Uh, hanging up high in the uh, mouse gear store. Exactly. And, uh, you know, again, you talked about the naming of everything. Well, here there was the Imaginometer that that measured all the different things. It measured the collections of dreams and sights and colors and sound, all these very, very abstract things. And you'd find, for example, a a box, a locked chest that had a fog bank in it or another barrel that had laughs in it. I was like, obviously, a barrel of laughs. You'd have file cabinets with buzzes and groans and barks so you'd have all these different sort of abstract things that were quantified um in these different yeah, my things. favorite yeah, i'm sorry my favorite there was um the deep thoughts that were in the diving bell mm. <laughs> there was a do you remember the um do you remember the perfume bottle that sprayed this this mist into the room and it had this smell yeah. of, of, of flowers and you know as we were talking about this and as i was like you said researching this it really you know the, the dream port really is a metaphor for the mind, for our mind, and that's what it was meant to do. It was be a representation of the fact that everything that we see and everything that we experience is sent here and it's processed and it's stored away for us to recall and maybe use it later on, just you know, kind of the same way our, our brain works. And I think what's important too is it to go just back up just a slight bit and then kind of tie it in going forward. What was really remarkable about this attraction, and to me, if, if you could go back in time and, and ride it again right now, I think technologically speaking and just presentation, it would hold up because it it integrated so many different types of presentations. And what I really especially liked about it was animation. It it had animation on various screens integrated into the set props. And what in the um, dream vehicle segment, you know, when you were talking about it collecting all these different abstract concepts and ideas, they're actually, you know, being projected on the screen behind and being kind of sucked into to the dream vehicle, you know, to where he's, you know, creating figment and everything like that. So all these kind of special effects, you know, were being integrated and it was just very, very cool. I mean, it's hard, you know, when we're talking about it now to, to kind of describe it to people, but it was just, it was really remarkable. Right. And for people who are only familiar with, with the newest incarnation of the attraction, it's very, very different from what we're talking about. And I'm sure there are plenty of places online that you can find this. Um, I'll also quickly just throw a plug out here for the Extinct Attractions Club. They sell a Journey to Imagination DVD, which is excellent and has a lot and has actually a great video of the original uh, original ride through, which you should um, pick up. And I'll put links up to this kind of stuff in the show notes. But um, from the Dreamport, Jeff, this is where it, it really kind of brings us into these four different themed areas and they were broken up into very specific genres and the first one is the arts and this was one of the ones I think for me was most memorable because it opens up into this giant kind of white artist's palette um, you know obviously a metaphor for a blank canvas of the mind and appropriate that it's first because Figment's mind like ours at this point is supposed to be completely blank and it, it, it really goes into um, it's the scene where 
Dreamfinder is painting through a fiber optic paintbrush, and I believe they call this. I've seen it described a couple places. They were I, it was referred to as a pelage, and it was an iridescent painting, and it was the largest of its kind ever produced at that point. And it was, if, you know, help me out with this. If I'm describing this correctly, <laughs> it it was using refracting light through polarized filters. Is that the way you've had seen it, heard it described as well? I have I'm, now. I'm trying... Sure, that works for me. Sure. No, no, it's, it's funny <laughs> because when I was reading, when I was doing my research and kind of pulling these descriptions out, I remember the scene, but I can't remember the actual tiny details of what they're describing here, if that makes sense. You know, I, there, there are elements that I remember of it specifically. Um, I remember these uh, kind of, you know, calliope horses that looked like paper cutouts that were white, but uh, the use of abstract imagery around it and color and light and the music was uh and i remember seeing figment also like with a paintbrush painting this white canvas with projections and things from from all around and i do remember figment i don't remember you know obviously i don't know the name of the technology that was used but um yeah, but Dream I do was, it was like this huge huge wall and he was actually it, it's actually when you first when you actually left the dream port and entered into that scene into the art scene you had him painting on the large wall, and then you transitioned into the room, which you said was all white. And this is interesting because whenever I talk to people um, who just who talk about the attraction, it is the one common memory they have of it, and is what I kind of I've always called it the origami room. Mm-hmm. And exactly. it was basically, you know, based just these huge, oversized origami animals and creatures and sculptures. That everything was white, as you said. It was this very, very stark white, and it just it really hits you when you just come come kind of around the bend and see it. Right, and I remember the canopies that came up over the track, and the track at this point was very curving, very, very winding. And I remember just colors coming up from behind them and in front of them and and underneath um, to really give some um, a lot of movement to these static objects. So from the arts room, you go into the literature room, and again, I have this memory of going into the room and seeing the dream finder sitting at this giant illuminated typewriter with this uh, A-shaped volcano over his head. And, and he's kind of typing these words and on all these words are being spit out of the top of the volcano. Yeah, this is by far, I will have to say, is my favorite part of the attraction. And, you know, I've always been a reader all my life, so you know, I, it, it kind of connected with me very directly. And as a, and as back then, even then, you know, I write a blog now, but I was always kind of an aspiring writer. So just everything that was represented here, just I just really loved. And again, getting back to where it was incorporating um, kind of projections and animations in, you have the one scene where Figment is um, holding blocks, um, letter blocks. And what he does is he flips, he, they're spelling out cat, and he flips the C to a B. And while he's doing that, in the background, there's a moon. And the, the cat shadow, there's a shadow of a cat on the moon. As he flips it, it'll, it'll you know, morph into a bat. And it was interesting because this, this room really took a dark approach <laughs> to <Yeah>. literature. <laughs> Every, everything was very dark and kind of menacing. And, and you, you, with the, when you were talking about the letters spit, spilling out from the volcano A kind of a thing, um, everything was, you know, would form into these very big sculptures of, mm-hmm. like, you know, tumble avalanche um shake, some of the right yeah and everything would you know shake you know would be shaking everything would kind of be acting out and then there was even like i think at one point it was animation again where um the word genie would come up in animated form and, and morph into a genie 
Um, it was, it was really scary looking. This genie was a scary yeah. looking genie. I remember that. And that's, <laughs> and that's what I remember. This whole scene just really went totally gothic almost <laughs> to the point where then there was the um, the re- the um, I'm sorry, excuse me, the reference to Edgar Allan Poe's Raven. Mm. And do you remember that part where it's right? It, it says there was a giant raven. It said, "Quoth the raven, nevermore." Yep. And if you remember, Jeff, in this section too, the music was very, very dark, very spooky here. Yeah, the the whole atmosphere was definitely you know scary stories, and it, it kind of culminated in a very comical scene where you have a very tiny little figment, and he's bracing a door shut, and behind the door you have all these creepy crawlies and monster arms and hands, you know, reaching out, you know, trying to get out of the door. Yeah, because even, like you said, even there was a scene where it was talking about fairies and things like that. And even that section where, where the, um, you know, where the images of fairies and the words about fairies were coming out were scary. But like you said, that, that Tales of Terror scene at the very end was, uh, was it made me think of like an evil funhouse. I, I don't know how else to describe yeah. what that scene was. And if you remember it, um, you know, seeing it from, from when the attraction opened, you'll know pretty much... Um, what we're talking about, but it goes from there into something very, very lighthearted, and that's the performing arts section. And as you came in, it looked as though you were entering a theater, kind of like when you begin the great movie ride with the big marquee. You also had the promo posters showing laughter and music and song and dance. And the first image you see of Figman here is where he's with this steamer trunk full of props. He's got a, uh, uh, a top hat and tails on, and it looks as though he's in front of a dressing room mirror. Like he's ready to go on stage. Yeah, and he's kind of dressed up in, you know, as you said, in the tux and everything. And he's, and again, we should probably be um, bringing up also that the the song "One Little Spark" that begins the show is recurring all the way through, and the melody and is essentially the same going through. And this was uh, written uh, by the, the the famous Sherman Brothers, who had done so much Disney work and had done a great deal of work even for Epcot Center in those initial years. You have both he and Dreamfinder singing through these vignettes, and it, it especially kicks up a lot because they, they kind of kick it up into sort of this Broadway kind of show tunes kind of you know feel in this particular segment. Yeah, and that's exactly where I was going to go because this is what I thought was a good place to talk about the music because it made me think of of all places, the Haunted Mansion, where you have Grim Grinning Ghosts playing throughout the attraction, but it's slightly different in the different scenes you go through. And here is exactly the same way. You've got that spooky, evil music instantly changing into that Broadway style in the performing arts scene. And that, that now does this, again, this is, we're straining our memory here. There's, I'm very distinctly remembering, does this segue into the scene where Dreamfinder is actually geared up or decked out in old-fashioned, you know, director, movie director, you know, and he's got an old-fashioned movie camera, very, you know, 1930s, 1920s-esque. You know, he's got the the tall boots, the cap. Um, that That's actually in the last scene. That's actually in the image technology section where he's actually taking a picture of you on oh, the attraction. Oh, that's right, that's right. Here, uh, I, I was, this is yeah, where he's conducting okay, the, the okay. laser ballet. Right, right, okay, yeah. There's, uh, there's this giant... Uh, screen with like this purplish blue and these red lines kind of going off into a, a distant disappearing horizon and forgive my whoa so obscure 80s reference here but it looked like a game screen from the old vector graphics arcade game battle zone I, I spent yeah, way too much yeah. time in, in video arcades and that's what it reminded me of and he's conducting lasers with his pointer um, kind of like what you do it's later like, on in the image works yeah because it's basically they're the notes are turning into birds 
Was that what it was doing? I remember, yeah, I remember like a, a top hat and this, um... Yeah. There were like yeah. all the, these funny, um, like geometric shapes that would, would become different objects. I don't remember specifically what, what all of them were without actually looking again. I, I remember the two theater masks, like the happy and sad mm -hmm. theater yeah. masks. Um, and... Right. I'm really remembering this. I'm not just going, yeah, mm -hmm, uh -huh. I'm really remembering. <laughs> well, and that's what I'm hoping that we're doing it, is jogging some people's memory. And what I'm going to mention next, hopefully will as well, and that was the hitchhiking figment. Very much, again, reminiscent of a hitchhiking ghost, but here, very different because he's dressed in uh, in his little silver spacesuit. And I had a little PVC figurine of him like this. In fact, I still do somewhere. I think we all, I think all of us had, <laughs> had those PVC figures. But, you know, we were talking about the music, and there's that one memorable line where Dreamfinder says, well, what about science? Science, science. And that's what he says I mean, science, here. Science, science, science. Right. And it brings us to the science and technology scene. And again, wrapping it all kind of right back into the overall theme, one of the overall overriding themes of Epcot and Future World. Yeah, and, and this scene was great because... Again, you see uh, Dreamfinder and Figment, and they are dressed differently. And here, Dreamfinder looks as though he, he's almost sp steering some sort of like a giant spaceship with this crank on top. And again, that's kind of Jules Verne-ish look, and there's this uh, illuminated globe behind him. And all around you, and again, this is that same sort of turntable effect where you're going around in this scene. There are six different scenes that showed various images from nature and abstract images of things like water and and crystals and cells and germination and things like that yeah you had like microorganisms they showed um human like muscle movement um they were doing the time-lapse photography you know with plant growth um and yeah when you were talking about the the kind of the it's you can't even give it a name but it was this sort of pseudo wacky telescope microscope kind of bizarre <laughs> you know contraption <laughs> Exactly, and it's it, it's we're here that figment, you know, kind of the, the 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 light bulb sort of goes off in his head, and he realizes that he can use his imagination to unlock all kinds of real possibilities, and and um, kind of you know brings it all into this one segment, and, and his imagination lets you do real things as far as science is concerned and, and technology is concerned, and then after here when you leave. Um, the Dreamfinder here, kind of standing at this console, you see him again dressed in um, almost like a wizard, almost like a sorcerer in this in this long kind of um, wizard, like a, a sorcerer's apprentice kind of robe. So, and when you see, along with seeing the Dreamfinder here, you also sort of hear this trumpet fanfare, as if there was this catharsis or this realization on Figment's part, and, and hopefully you as well, as to what you've learned in this attraction. You go through this tunnel. And it opens up again to another one of those turntables. This time, Figment is at the center. And above you and around you, you're surrounded by probably around a, uh, about a dozen different scenes. And they're, they're showing him in all different scenes kind of around the world. He's riding a horse or he's weightlifting or he's mountain climbing. He's in the desert or he's steering a ship. He's using his imagination and he's, he's you know, visualizing these things on the screens around you. Yeah, and, the, it, and the, the, the interesting thing about this is, it's kind of funny in a way, is it really represents pre-computer, you know, graphic era technology yeah. because the, the, representation, the representations are neither animated, traditional animated, or any kind of CG because it hadn't come along yet. So they were literally almost puppetry, animatronic kind of related, mm. you know, vignettes. With, they on, were on, actually... Right, on green screens, clearly on green right. screens, right. 
and it was just well, I, if you would probably look at them today you would you would distinctly go oh my gosh that's really somewhat on the primitive side especially now that we have a, a CG figment on the newest attraction you know I wonder if it was intentional I wonder if it was done intentionally because I'm sure they could have done better or do they want to kind of go with that campy retro look and feel it, to it because because all around you were uh, like film reels they were surrounded by all these different yeah. films so to, to, to give you a really impression that you were like in a movie and, and maybe they were kind of almost, almost overdoing it on purpose it, it did have that feel and I mean and, and even the whole dynamic of figment and dreamfinder almost has that kind of kids TV show adult and puppet sidekick right. <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of dynamic to it and it just it just I always when you when you, you really flash my memory when you started talking about this because I, I remember the weightlifting and and they were very very distinctly playing all those little little scenes for laughs very very much yeah and and this is really where it comes full circle figment has realized the power of imagination hopefully you have as well and here's where you get to see in this image technology scene, the Dreamfinder in that very 1930s style uh, director's garb, as you described, with the camera. And that camera is actually a real camera, and it's showing you. And if you look straight ahead, you'd see yourself in the ride vehicle on a screen right in front of you. Nothing, no special effects, no nothing. It took a picture of you, and that was it. And actually, at the time, you couldn't even buy them, I don't think. I think it was just, um, you know. Yeah, it, it was. It was just strictly the novelty of it then. And people were going, you know, you know, yawn, yawn. But at that point in time, it was new and innovative, and it and it was in a way kind of the precursor of all of the now almost on every attraction, you know, get your picture taken, buy it, take it home, kind of a thing. Exactly, and and the last thing you see as you approach the unload area was the invitation to go and visit the Image Works, which was the very interactive post show, which tied directly into the attraction. I, I sort of analogize it to Communicore, this this creative playground of the future where you could do hands-on things that tied into things that you saw that or technologies that you saw in the attraction or concepts that maybe they made reference to and 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 as you say it, it tied in directly because very importantly both dreamfinder and figment played very big parts in these interactive activities um one the probably the most you know well-known or most famous one was the dreamfinder school of drama where it was just a basically a blue screen process where they would take four or five volunteers and put them in front of a blue screen and they would cue them to certain do certain things like jumping up or standing up or whatever and then that would mesh with an actual pre-filmed um, sequence and then put it all together to play for everybody and I, I, I hope my explanation just made sense but they had four or five different you know film themes like one was a science fiction theme one was a western theme um, and that was very cool I remember I actually when I was there got to be a part of one of those um, sequences. That was one of those things like, you know, how come my family was never picked? And as many times as I wanted my parents to keep going back, we never did. Uh, and one thing we should point out, because for people who are saying, well, you know, I don't remember that. Or, or when you exit the attraction now, where do they put all this stuff? We should make it a point of saying all the, the image works that were there until about 1998 were located on the second floor. You had to take either that, that set of silver circular stairs to the second level. There was also an elevator that you could take. And this whole second level, which is still there, um, and from what I understand, and, and you know, I've talked about this in the rumor mill section, is being refurbished. And, and I don't know exactly what's going there, but it is going to open again at some point. Um, the first thing I remember being met with 
like today, was tons of figment plush. It was, I mean, they, they really, for a, a theme yeah. park that didn't have characters when it first opened, they really made a big push for figment. And, and I think the stuff must have sold well. Yeah, figment uh, was all just the rage. I just remember going into Centorium because I think there was not a gift shop in imagination like there is now. Right. There was the little camera shop that was like the Kodak-sponsored camera shop that's still there that sits adjacent to the Magic Eye Theater. Did I call it Magic Lantern early and on? <laughs> I think so, but nobody was. That's all right. <laughs> Magic Eye, folks. I stand corrected. <laughs> but anyway, there was that little shop, and now you know you have this huge retail space um, down there now. But in Centorium, in Communicore, and form was formerly Communicore, it was all it was all Figment. There was a, there was Figment was the character representation of Epcot, and he was on so much so much of the merchandise. Um, one one real quick thing I wanted to add that just really struck me um, when you talk about it being upstairs. One of the very neat things about that was is there was a couple different areas there that were, you know, you had the image works, but I very distinctly remember and something that I enjoyed so much um, back then was if you remember, they Kodak had sponsored the photography contests mm -hmm. every year. And there was that one side area kind of off to the side of the image works where they would always have the um, the pictures displayed, the winning pictures. Right. And it was just it was something that you could spend probably almost a half an hour to forty five minutes just walking through and seeing that. And I remember those always being there. And the other thing that just I was really, really liked and I'm very much hoping you're right with the rumors about it opening back up. That area up there had one of the most incredible views looking out over Future World and World Showcase as well. You are reading my notes, aren't you? <laughs> because I was going to talk <laughs> because people don't realize the pyramid. You got to see the, yeah, the, the infrastructure of the pyramid and the, it was beautiful. It was bright. You, you saw Spaceship Earth, Sans Wand and, and, the, and different views of uh, Future World. It was beautiful up there. Yeah, it's just it's it was such a dynamic place, and and to just have it just kind of closed off, you know, the last few years, it's kind of just so wrong. <laughs> I, I really do hope that the uh, the rumors that I'm hearing about it opening up again in some form or fashion, whatever it's going to be up there, um, do end up coming true. But a lot of the things that we talked about in the image work, and we're going to talk about, weren't necessarily in this. There was a, a large open area that you could sit. Uh, and a lot of the stuff in the image works was enclosed because uh, they needed to control the amount of light coming in. You talked about the characters being in this area as well. You talked about the Dreamfinder School of Drama. There was also the Figment coloring book. And this is what I remember doing a lot. And, and basically, you had this giant paintbrush-shaped, for lack of a better word, a cannon that you yeah. could draw on the distant wall. So you'd see these white canvases. You'd pick different colors and you'd be able to color it in using these big um, paintbrush cannons. And that was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. I mean, you're fighting. You know, here we are. You know, you know, I was a, you know, I'm an adult, and I'm like wanting to kick the little kids. Because <laughs> you know, after after you did it for like what three minutes, then the little message came up and said, you know, please give somebody else a chance. And, right. And you always got some crabby little kid there in front of you that would never pay attention. You know. And you, what look, can you do? You're, you're the adult. I you know. know. Well, no, I was like, I I was well, sort of a kid, and I could just imagine how much time I I made or, or begged my parents to spend because I loved all these guys. The thing that I loved the it's so stupid was the pin table. I was Remember, about to say the pin, the pin screen. table. There was a pin screen, and there was just basically people are going big deal. Where's my PSP? Um, there was a pin, a, a giant table of pins, and you'd put your hand underneath it and make all kinds of different shapes and faces and things like that. Um, speaking of faces, it was something called Making Faces, and it was uh, around this giant cylinder, 
and you'd stand in front. It would take a picture of your, a digital picture of your face, and you could draw on it and add hats and glasses and mustaches. And again, using the same touchscreen technology that they were showcasing over in Communicore. And then you could also animate it. Um, you could animate it. You could add music to it. And on screens overhead, people could see what you were doing to it. Um, the big thing I think people are probably screaming at their iPods about is the big sensor tunnel, the giant rainbow right. tunnel with all the neon lights and the mirrors that kind of followed you as you walked through. There was a way that it actually sensed the, the different guests in there. So the lights followed you as you walked back and forth. Um, the stepping tones, remember the stepping tones? And the stepping tones, you know, here again, tying into the, the time period of the early 80s <laughs> is that they, they played out the music from what movie? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Luke. Uh, Saturday Night Fever. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> Come on. I, don't make me do. Don't make me hum. <laughs> Please hum. Please hum. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> oh, no kidding. I forgot about that. And I was a huge yeah. Close Encounters fan. Yeah. I'm so, so ashamed. I'm so you should ashamed. be. <laughs> But what were some of the other things that yeah, were then, you know, that, that, that clever 70s movies where Richard Dreyfuss abandons his family. And goes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Steven Spielberg has just about disowned it. So. Um, some, on... <laughs> some of the things that were up there, too, was the uh, there was a giant mosaic wall of, of mirrors and things like that that kind of digitized your, your image as you walked by. There were the, uh, the electronic Philharmonic. Again, something similar to what Dreamfinder was doing there. You could wave your arms, and I think they still have something like this downstairs now, to kind of conduct an orchestra using sensors. Again, you've got that kind of sensor technology being used in the Q and Soren 25 years ago, 24 years ago. You had it being used in, in a much different way over here in um, in Imagination. Um, what else? There was Olumia, which was the uh, the light show. Right, yeah. This was this. It was a big sphere that would respond um, with all kinds of different light effects to the sound of guests' voices and obviously kids screaming and, and all that kind of stuff like that. Uh, what else? There was the magic palette. You could use a light pen to color in. Again, at the time that the technology was relatively groundbreaking because personal computers at this point really were not uh, as mainstream as they are today. Right. Um, and this closed This closed back in 1998. It reopened a year later, not as the ImageWorks, but as the What If Labs, which was very different. And then it's actually been... Ra- I think what it is now is the ImageWorks Kodak's What If Labs. They kind of combine the two names of uh, uh, of the original incarnations of it. Well, you know, we're, we're mentioning, kind of alluding to changes in the ImageWorks and the post-show area. And obviously, we, we couldn't do a segment about the pavilion without talking about the changes, good or bad, depending on how you look at it, that did go through um, a number of years ago. It, the pavilion closed back in 1998, reopened a year later as Journey into Your Imagination, um, which, as we all know, did not star Figment or the Dreamfinder. They changed the entire theme of the pavilion from really being about, you know, discovering imagination to being this imagination institute. The cars were now, uh, they were, were red now, they weren't blue. You kind of went through this imagination scanner that had um, kind of insulting ways of showing that you had cobwebs in your mind and vacancy signs in your brain. And, and the goal of, of obviously going to the institute was to help develop our imaginations and uh, this is the one that people just really pardon the pun lost their minds about because Figment and Dreamfinder who were so important and who were so integral and were so well loved I mean they were walk around characters for a long time 
were taken out um, of this pavilion, uh, of the attraction. Yeah, and what's, I think, where they went with it was, and I think people, it's funny when I talk to people today about the whole Imagination Pavilion and the whole connection to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. People today, because it's been around so long, they really can't conceive of why it went this way. And what they fail to realize is that when Honey, I Shrunk the Audience premiered, that that franchise was incredibly successful and incredibly popular. And Honey, I Shrunk the Audience was a very, very successful attraction. Um, it really, you know, people really talked about it. We, you know, we kind of went over it a little bit when we, we talked about our 3D films. But I think Disney saw that level of popularity, the fact that they had the tie-ins to the films, and I think they ultimately did a syndicated TV show. I think they said, you know, we've got lightning in a bottle here. You know, we're due for a rehab. Let's play this angle. And I think it, that combined with the fact that it just they totally underestimated, as you said, the, the appeal of Figment and Dreamfinder just made for a bit of a disaster for them. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what it was. And I don't really remember very much about this attraction, save from having looked at, at videos to refresh my recollection. Um, I do remember the one scene, if I if I think it was in this version, where you were in a darkened room and there was the, the single headlight coming towards you, and it just made me think about Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, but um, I just remember saying, well, where is Figment? And, the only, and he actually was in there, but only as an image in a constellation, and that was it. Otherwise, there was no animatronic of Figment, there was no reference to him at all. Um, but fortunately, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, what I was going to mention is that one of the things that they did dramatically, and I, I saw somebody actually on online have a diagram. They actually had an original diagram of the show track, and they showed how the Imagineers totally shortened the ride. Mm-hmm. It's it's like there's just a huge, huge chunk of the track that they kind of just cut off and detoured back, you know, to later on in the attraction. So it's very a, a very short and abbreviated just in terms of the track and the ride time version of the original and the show elements, you know, when when we talk about, you know, as we talked about this of how there was so much detail, there was so much going on. It was almost a sensory overload and you switched to what the attraction became very sparse, Mm -hmm. very minimal in terms of, you know, the sets in terms of the elements that were in each, each scene and in each vignette, it was just night and day. And I think, it was just a shock to the people that truly, you know, it, it wasn't a good, you know, we, you know, if we want to be honest, it wasn't a very good attraction. And then because it was so dramatically the opposite of what the original was, it was just, it just really struck you. It was like, oh my God, what happened? Yeah, and you're right. And I think, you know, that between opening up a, a not, I hate to say a not very good attraction and one that took out these beloved characters, I think that's why... Uh, people felt as they did, the way they reacted as passionately as they did, but it worked because it closed in October 2001. Um, uh, you know, even though at the end of our ride, our minds were full of ideas, that concept just didn't work. They closed it, they reopened it as Journey into Imagination with Figment in June of 2002. Figment's brought back, again, oddly enough, no reference to the Dreamfinder was brought back. And I remember speaking to a, uh, a an artist from the Disney Design Group and and, um, and another division, who at one point told me a couple of years ago that as far as Disney was concerned, and this was at that time, the Dreamfinder was described as dead, and that's a term that they did not use for characters because they felt no good idea died, but as far as they felt, 
the Dreamfinder would never come back. And of course, now there's rumors about him possibly coming back in some form or another. Um, there's been a Dreamfinder figure. There's been a, a, a Dreamfinder Mickey plush. So um, he's been resurrected, at least in some form or fashion. But, um, you know, the whole Insti- Imagination Institute is still there. This time it's an open house. Um, they, they've tweaked it a little bit more that now we're, we're really going through not to necessarily explore our imagination, but to explore our five senses. Yeah, it's it's still it's better. It's still a very much a shadow of its original self, and um, you know the whimsy of Figment kind of you know brought it back to life a little bit. But I think everybody out there, even you know relatively newcomers to 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 Epcot, are kind of hoping deep down to to see something of greater scope and scale you know be brought back in there. Yeah, there's been rumors for for a while now since uh, the Disney Pixar. Uh, acquisition took place that John Lasseter is a big uh, fan of the of the pavilion. He's obviously a huge driving creative force behind it and that he wants to bring back uh, Tony uh, Baxter into possibly uh, bringing back this attraction, not in its original form, but in some form that's different than what it is today. Again, this is one of these rumors that I think is going to persist for some time. The only thing I will say about the attraction in its current state is that one little spark did come back. Um, unfortunately, Billy Barty is no longer with us, so he didn't do the voice, although it is pretty uh, it is pretty good. There are some new lyrics. The thing that I do like that I'm, Jeff, I'm sure, Jeff, you like as well are the references to a lot of the older Disney movies. You can find references to Flubber, Absent-Minded Professor, um, Computer War Tennis Shoes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, rather than us actually telling people where they are, they should really try and go through. You'll see it in the queue, and then you'll also see it in the attraction itself. You have to look very carefully and not necessarily in the areas of the attraction that you're supposed to be focused on. But uh, again, we're not making you look at garbage cans, but, we're, but we want you to look around <laughs> and, uh, and really pay attention to it. So, And like you said, we really won't touch on Magic Journeys because when we did our section on uh, um, the 3D movies, we really, really talked about that at length but um it's interesting to, to see what the future is going to be um i think we all agree that probably the original incarnation of the attraction is what we liked most and hopefully this little trip this kind of little retrospective trip into the journey into imagination attraction and the imagination pavilion as a whole brought back some of your memories um and hopefully next time you go will help you uh, explore the pavilion in a little more detail as well it's always a fun and uh it's it's really always a good time to go back 25 years and relive these moments absolutely and Jeff thank you as always don't forget to go visit Jeff's blog 2719hyperion.blogspot.com we're going to have more in our Epcot retrospective series as we approach Epcot's 25th Jeff thanks again buddy thanks Luke it's always a pleasure to be here what a spark how are we going to use lightning hmm we can combine it with ghostly shivers on a stormy night Ooh. and turn them into a tale of fright. <laughs> oh, oh, look, look, a rainbow. I'll use that. You paint with. Now you've got it. Wow, wow, wow. Numbers, letters, papers for writing, costumes, makeup, stages for lighting, tears off laughter. <laughs> what about science? Science? We'll need electron beams and crystal prisms, gyroscopes and magnetism, holy grail Hold on, pigment. Why? The idea bag is full. It is? Let's start making new things. No, wait. First, we must store these ideas with the others in the dream port. Are we almost there? Oh, the dream port is never far away when you use your imagination. Come on, everybody. Let's we go. We all have spots. 
imagination. That's how our minds create creations. <laughs> right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. Oh, boy. Imagination. Imagination. A dream can be a dream come true. With just that spark in me and you. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I, of course, want to thank my special guests, Tim Foster from GuidesOfTheMagic.com, as well as Adam Roth from DreamFinder Forever and the Celebration 25 event. Remember, registration closes this week, so visit the show notes page to find out more and be sure to register, even if you're thinking about coming so you don't get shut out of the event. Thanks, as always, to Jeff Pepper for his help with the Imagination segment. And if you like that segment or The Pavilion or even Figment or DreamFinder, be sure to tune in next week as I have another exclusive interview that ties directly into this week's segment that I think you're really going to enjoy. Again, thank you to everybody that I had a chance to meet last night at the Virgin Megastore. I really appreciate you taking the time to come by. Thanks to John Crigliano from MouseTimes.com for coming by and helping me out all night, as well as Eric Hollister from GeoMouse.com, who I finally had a chance to meet face-to-face, more like face to chest since Eric is about 12 feet tall so keep those short jokes coming um, because I'll put a photo in the show notes of me and Eric and John over at the House of Blues and well you'll see what I mean when you see the picture but anyway speaking of the show notes don't forget to visit our show notes page at wdwradio.com for more information links and photos to topics I covered this week as well as our merchandise shop and links to previous episodes of the show if you're planning a Disney vacation and want to get that Disney experience even while you're getting ready to go please go and visit our friends at The Magic for Less Travel for a free, no-obligation quote. They're authorized Disney vacation planners, graduates of the College of Disney Knowledge, and they offer you daily discount checking services, lots of free goodies that you can't get anywhere else, and most importantly, outstanding personal service, which is free to you. Visit the WDWRadio.com website for more information and a link to The Magic for Less Travel. On upcoming shows, I have another in our Legend of Disney Imagineering interviews, the next installment in the Epcot Retrospective series, more Disney scene investigations with Jeff Pepper, vacation planning information with the help of some special guests, your emails, and so much more. Many of you have also been asking, so I'm going to give you an update next week all about my upcoming Mouse Tour audio CDs and when they may be coming out. Don't forget our marathon challenges are still going on thanks to Eric Hollister from geomouse.com. Remember, if you're going to be at MouseFest, be sure you visit the mousefest.org website or disneyworldtrivia.com for more information about the events that we're going to be going to. You can also go to the show notes at wdwradio.com for links to our uh, events page. And you, like I said, you can also go to the mousefest.org site for the full schedule. Don't forget, I still want the show to continue to be interactive, so email me at lou at wdwradio.com with your questions, comments, ideas, segment topics, anything else you'd like to hear on the show, or call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. You can call up, make a suggestion, just say hi, anything you like, and of course, please come by our fun and very friendly forums at disneyworldtrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. As always, if you like the show, please review us in iTunes, dig the show, and of course, please help spread the word. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I really appreciate you coming back. Have a fantastic week. See ya. Imagination.
dream, a dream, and me, and me, a dream.